0: I'm Claire Parker and I'm Ashley Hamilton and this is is Celebrity. Celebrity. I hate it. Club, I'm doing it at a normal pace and I feel like when we're doing it on Zoom, you fuck up.
1: I do think when we talk at the exact same time on Zoom, the technology fucks up.
0: Okay. This makes my heart break for Zoom to not be able to hear us both at once. It's missing out.
1: Ashley, can you tell the listeners what they're about to listen to? They're about to listen to a podcast called Celebrity Memoir
0: Book Club. We are discussing, ladies and gentlemen, not just reading off the page. This is not reading club. This is book club where we are getting through the ins and outs of each book. And if you happen to be someone who does not like discussion, this is not the podcast for you and especially this episode. But if you are
1: here to If you are here to look at the nuance of discussion, listen on, my friends. We can't wait to have you.
0: And if that is your cup of tea and you feel like leaving us a five-star review, I love you immensely. And I'll be reading your name at the end of the podcast. Also, this is our last episode of the year because it's the last week of the year, but we're taking the first week of the new year off. However, we will be doing a Patreon episode next week. And our show at Nikki's Unisex is back next week on January 6th. It's our first show of the new year. We're going to have a great lineup of comedians and it'll be so fun. So if you are in the New York City area and you miss us dearly, come hang out, watch comedy, 7 p.m. The link will be in the episode description.
1: And if you forgot to get somebody a Christmas gift, merch is always fun. Check out the Worm merch. And with that, Claire... If mm-hmm. you were
0: to write a memoir about your life, what would you title the chapter about this week?
1: Cool, common, collected.
0: Wow. Explain.
1: If you have been following me for any amount of time, you know that I've been trying to get to Italy for going on three years now. It has taken me as long to get to Italy as it would have in like 1202. I am like Christopher Columbus over here setting sail on a plank of wood. If you had left on the day of your first planned
0: trip to Italy, You could have walked there by now, provided you were Jesus and water was no issue.
1: I finally was going to get to go on Christmas Day. We were supposed to fly over. Like Jesus. Like Jesus. (laughs) I was going to be born unto Italy. I knew because of the COVID crisis happening. You guys might know there's a pandemic. I'm not sure if that's true where you are, but it is true where we are. And I watched the COVID numbers go up and I was like, okay, I know that this is hanging in the balance like a week earlier, my boyfriend who I was supposed to go with was like, yeah, there's like a fifty-fifty 50-50 chance. People kept asking me about it. And I kept being like, yeah, there's a 50-50 chance. And then I was supposed to meet him in Canada for Christmas. And then on Christmas, we were going to go. The day before I left, I called Mac and I was like, what should I pack? And he goes, just mostly warm stuff. It's going to be really cold here. And I go, yeah, but like, what about Italy? And he just goes, oh, that's been done. <laughs> He's like, we're not going to Italy. He goes, that's been over for like a while. And I was like... Okay. Well, nobody told me. But my point is, I keep telling people this story. And they were like, whoa, are you upset? And I was like, I don't know. It's okay. And people are like, you're not upset that he like didn't warn you. And I was like, I love my boyfriend. He's great at a lot of things. He's definitely not a planner. <laughs> I feel like the fact that I was like, oh, okay, Italy's over is so cool of me. Truly. I'm like, it's fine. I'm happy. I'm healthy. I'm with family.
0: Yeah, you're still on a fun trip. Montreal is like Europe. It's the most Europe you can get without going to Europe or that Scandinavian village in California.
1: (laughs) Slovene. One time my mom booked us a vacation to Boston and she kept saying, it's supposed to be like a European city. And we were like, (laughs) at this point in me and my brother's life, we had been to Europe and we were like, you can't keep saying that. We know what Europe looks like. Stop calling Boston a European city. Like the amount of drunk dudes throwing hockey
0: sticks at each other, just like (laughs) Europe.
1: It's like an Irish Russia. It's not Europe. (laughs) Anyways, and I say this being like, I don't even think I deserve credit for it. Like when I first was cool about it, I didn't even think anything of being cool. But because of other people's response to my collectedness, I'm like, wow, I guess I deserve credit for being so.
0: (laughs) I guess I am so cool.
1: So I don't say this from me. I say this from what I've heard.
0: I've heard that I'm really cool and calm. This would be the chapter in your memoir from everyone else's perspective.
1: Yes, this would be the Tyler Cameron from people who know her best. And they'd be like, you might think Claire is in a psychotic hothead who's entitled and a bitch. But actually one time her free trip to Italy was postponed because of a pandemic and she was pretty understanding. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's true. I'm understanding. And Congratulations. Ashley. Yes, Claire. What would this week of your memoir be?
0: I would call this week of my memoir, Ashley in Paris, because I have something pretty shameful to say. I am extremely inspired by Emily in
1: Paris right now. (laughs) Inspired?
0: (laughs) I have to explain. Let me explain. Inspired?
1: I never. If you had given me one million years and a million (laughs) guesses, I would have never in my life guessed the word you'd use would be inspired. I thought you were going to say you were ashamed that you even watched it all.
0: I haven't finished it. I have one episode to go. I watched the first nine in one sitting. (laughs)
1: I heard that there's Easter eggs for you in there, that they're going to do a you crossover. Oh, my
0: God. Is Emily going to be the next dead girl? Because she should be killed. Anyway, so what happened is this week is known as Betwixtmas in my eyes. There was this old podcast called The Hilo Show, which was one of my favorites. And they taught me this term, which is the week between Christmas and New Year's, that everyone is always like, what do you call this week with this bizarre energy? Between Christmas and New Year's is betwixtmas. And I feel like it's the week that you're supposed to just slow down and really plan your life. And here's the thing. I've been slowed down for a couple weeks now because I had COVID and I just couldn't do anything. So I've definitely had my dose of slow, but I feel like when things were ramped up, they were so chaotic and I was so busy and stressed. And then I feel like right now I have two speeds, which is either doing nothing or doing everything. And in Emily in Paris, it really shows the contrast between American and Parisian work-life balance. And I'm very inspired by it. And so I have been thinking about it. And I really hope that when things start to open back up again, when I'm back in New York, that I'm able to have a medium version of my life. So I plan to be Parisian next year. Should we jump into our book this week? I'm like nervous.
1: I think this is gonna be my most controversial take since... Lyme disease.
0: (laughs) I want to admit right off the bat, our book this week is Emily Ratajkowski's book of essays, My Body. And I did go into this book wanting to hate it and prepared to hate it. I, as some commenters will say, am a misogynistic bitch. And I expected this book to suck. And it didn't.
1: I feel like I'm letting people down. I know people were looking for us to rip her apart. I'm letting me down. I wanted to shred the bitch. I personally like these essays. I think reading all these books, the one thing you can really ask of somebody is that they be honest. I think she was as honest as she could be. And I kind of appreciate her perspective. I do think it is a unique perspective in the world to just be like, all women are trying to be beautiful. As the most beautiful woman, here's what it's like from the top.
0: There are definitely things that this book left me wanting. There are definitely some things that I think she could have included and didn't. And I think that there are some things I wanted her to acknowledge that she didn't. But I think overall, she did a really good job. And I think that the things I want from it are things she could write in the future. I'm hoping that she continues to write. And I think that there are things that she might discover now that she's gotten all these ideas out on the page. I feel like that sounded really condescending to be like, I think she could grow into it. She's one day younger than me. And I'm like, let me tell you
1: what you'll learn as you age. (laughs) I actually think she came to as many conclusions as she could. And for her to have tried to find any hard answers in the topics of Feminism and beauty in society and power would have been idiotic. I don't think that there are hard conclusions. I think that would have been insane. But I think that broadening
0: the perspective a tiny bit, I think she's still like extremely inside of her own experience, which at the end of the day is pretty damn privileged and doesn't acknowledge that there are other women too necessarily.
1: This book definitely focuses on the high school years from puberty to 23, I would say. Yeah. And I feel like we both had different experiences of those years. I felt like I had a lot of the Emily experiences on obviously like a less scale. And I feel like you were like, I had very different experiences. And you felt your experiences were unacknowledged in the book.
0: And I don't expect her to acknowledge every experience. So I think that she was very honest about hers. But
1: we'll get into it when we
0: get into the chapters. Let's dive in. So the way we're
1: going to do it, because this is a book of essays, this is not a chronological experience of her life. These are theme-based essays. So we on this podcast will be discussing in depth four or five of the essays that we felt were most interesting for the podcast. The ones that are saucy. Yeah, the ones that spoke most to like the experience of being a celebrity, fame that got into the interesting parts of her personal life. The other ones we will be getting into on the Patreon with a little bit more... Personal judge. So if that is interesting to you, subscribe this week. This is your week. Otherwise, we will be going through and kind of summarizing them and then discussing them. So I want to start with the introduction because I think it's fair to look at this book in the context of what she meant for it to be. And she talks about in this introduction the way that people expected her to answer for the Blurred Lines video. Of course, Robin Thicke's Blurred Lines in 2013 music video went mega viral when he had three topless women just kind of parading about in the back. And of all the women, she specifically was the one who blew up to fame. There was something specifically sexy about her that nobody could deny. And she was often asked to answer for the video, the misogyny of it all. And her response was that it wasn't misogynistic, that she feels empowered by her naked body and she doesn't know why people are so angry that she made a choice and her choice as a woman is her right as an individual.
0: A lot of this book is about the fact that she's constantly asked to answer for the way that she comes across in public and she says I was tired of feeling guilty for the way I presented myself and she is asked to feel guilty for the way she presents herself all the fucking time
1: and she also has this perspective at that point that all women are objectified and sexualized to some degree I figured so I might as well do it on my own terms I thought that there was power in my ability to choose to do so so that was her answer at 21 which is how old she was when that video blew up then she goes today I read that essay and look at interviews from that period of my life and I feel a tenderness toward my younger self my defensiveness and defiance are palpable to me now what I wrote and preached then reflected what I believed at the time, but it missed a much more complicated picture. The rest of these essays are her new perspective on the situation, which is, I've capitalized on my body within the confines of a cis-hetero-capitalist patriarchal world, one in which beauty and sex appeal are valued solely through the satisfaction of the male gaze. Whatever influence and status I've gained were only granted to me because I appeal to men. My position brought me in close proximity to wealth and power and brought me some autonomy, but it hasn't resulted in my true empowerment. There's something I've gained only now, having written these essays and given voice to what I've thought and experienced.
0: And then to sort of head off, I think the main criticism that I had, she says, the purpose of this book is not to arrive at answers, but to honestly explore ideas I can't help but return to. I aim to examine the various mirrors in which I've seen myself, men's eyes, other women I've compared myself to, and the countless images that have been taken of me.
1: So that's what this book is about. And I think in terms of what she aimed to do, she satisfies the requirement.
0: Yeah. I really agree. And I know it sounds really condescending of me to call this a starting point in terms of her writing, but she was 30 when this book came out. And so I think that to say hopefully she's got all of her ideas and concepts sorted by 30. I would be interested to hear how her thoughts evolve as she ages into her body more because I'm interested in where she goes with it.
1: No, and I agree. And also, I don't even think it's condescending to say somebody's first attempt at writing probably isn't their best attempt at writing. Even though I do think a lot of thought and work went into these essays, and I do think she wrote them herself. Nobody's best try is their first try. I do think this is something that comes up that's worth talking about is the relationship she has to this book and how she's proud of this book. But she really only got to write this book because of the way she looked and whether or not her ideas should be discounted. And I do think it's valid to say, you know, some women did get noticed for their words because of their words, because they just kept at it. You know, we're not saying you're a bad writer, but we are saying other people have paid their dues more. I don't think she's a bad writer. I don't necessarily
0: think that this is the level of writing that would have gotten published by an anonymous person. But I also think that some of these essays are significantly better than others. And so that's what makes Mm -hmm. me want to hear more from her is because I wonder what order they were written. Because some of them feel really focused and poignant. And some of them just feel like she's trying to get ideas out on
1: a page. We disagree about what we think are the focused ones. Yeah. So we'll just start here. I mean, one of our big disagreements is on the first essay, Beauty Lessons, which is a collection of 23 little passages of a few paragraphs each, basically chronicling from the moment she was born up until now. So you say what you thought it was, and then I'll say what I thought it was.
0: I guess I didn't really get what it was at all. Like, it is just 23 Thoughts on beauty from different moments in her life and times where it's come up, and times where she's tried to reconcile with her own beauty. And parts of it I think are really interesting, and parts of it I think are a little gratuitous. And overall, I wish that there was more of a through line other than just here are times that I've been beautiful. I don't feel like there was a start, a middle, and an end.
1: Okay, so I would actively disagree and say there is a very strong through line and that is the inherited beauty expectations of her mother. So the very first chunk is, when you were born, my mother begins, the doctor held you up and said, look at the size of her. She's beautiful. And you were. The next day, he brought his children to the hospital just to see you. You were such a beautiful baby. And then that chunk ends with how normally that's where the story ends. But this time her mom goes... But my brother said, Kathy, Emily was a beautiful baby, but not as beautiful as you were. You were the most beautiful baby I've ever seen. She shrugs and then shakes her head as if to say, isn't that wild? I wonder briefly how she expects me to respond until I realize she is staring up the window, no longer paying attention to me. So the through line throughout the rest of this chapter, I would say is her mom's experiences with beauty and the way growing up her mom bestowed upon her both this gift of being beautiful, but also this value system that the most important thing is to be beautiful. And she says her mom was really beautiful. And she even talks about her grandfather had taught her mother, when people tell you you're beautiful, don't say anything because you shouldn't say thank you. You haven't worked for it. You haven't earned it. You've done nothing. And then meanwhile, she tells stories about the way her mom was so proud when people would say, oh, your daughter should be a model. Or even on Facebook, everybody would be like, oh, your daughter's so beautiful. But of course, she would be you're so beautiful. And I think she really starts this book off being like, how do you exist in a world where your own parents hand down both this beauty trap? And she's kind of expected to fulfill her mom's unfinished business of her mom wasn't allowed to experience or enjoy being beautiful. And she wants Emily to have that experience. Okay. So I do agree with you,
0: but I kind of feel like you're doing all of the important work in this chapter. Like, I think that that is a compelling essay and I don't mm-hmm. think it's fully a thing
1: she did on purpose. It 100% is. Flip through every section. Her mother is in every single section. Just to pull some quotes, I'm going to really quickly run through this chapter and kind of give a sense of what each little passage about. As I said, the first one's about how beautiful of a baby she was versus how beautiful a baby her mom was. The second part is about a hairdresser asking her on a shoot, is your mom pretty? And she goes, yeah, she's prettier than me. The hairdresser says, well, I'm sure that's not true. It's true. I respond matter of factly. I mean it. The next section is my mother's classically beautiful. Section four is about how there's photos of both of them as little girls and they look so much alike that you can't tell them apart. Section five is about the hair wars where her mother would try to untangle her hair as a child and how painful it was. Section six opens, I was not raised in any religion and talk of God was not a part of my childhood. But she would pray to be the most beautiful girl in the world. Section seven is what I talked about her grandfather telling her mother that she did not earn her beauty. Section eight was about her knowing that and wondering what her relationship was to it and to her mother. Section nine, wear whatever you want, Ems. My mother would always tell me, don't worry about other people. And it's about her mom coming to her defense when people said that Emily was too sexy. Section 10 literally starts, I tried to gauge where my parents thought I belonged in the world of beauties. It seemed important to them both, especially to my mother, that their daughter be perceived as beautiful. Section 11 is simply these two sentences. Beauty was a way for me to be special. When I was special, I felt my parents loved the most. 12 is about the time her mom took her to the casting and that story about, flipping her hair so that the boy would be interested in her. And then section 13, I think, is actually one of the most important sections for the rest of the book and the rest of this chapter. She talks about how important it is to be beautiful, and her mom had this ranking system of there's beautiful, and then there's men liked her, which is below beautiful, but better than nothing at all. Or she's cute, she'd say smiling sweetly, a subtle trace of pity in her tone. I mean, she's not a beauty. It just keeps going on like that. The pride her parents take in her being beautiful.
0: Okay. I actually have a couple things to say. First of all, you're right. I found the way this chapter is written to be so disjointed just because of the style of it, the way it's essentially mm-hmm. a listicle. And we know that I hate listicles. That pulled me out of what she was trying to say by her trying to be so artistic or something. To me, it just, didn't quite work because I literally didn't read what she was trying to say because I was so caught up in the
1: stylisticness of it. I mean, I guess that's my fault. I think it's fair to have the opinion. It was so stylized that it became ineffective.
0: You and I have talked about this a lot off mic about how our mom's generation was this generation where like beauty is the only thing that
1: matters. Or that as a woman, if you want to do anything successful, you have to first and foremost be beautiful and then sneak it in after almost.
0: And so... I think that one of my biggest qualms with the book, especially the first half of the book that we'll get into a little bit more later, is that it's so melancholy. She's so sad about how beautiful she is. And she's so depressed about the way that people associate her with beauty and the way that she is trying so hard to become more than her beauty and the way it's been projected upon her by other people, especially her parents. And I actually, now that I understand what she's trying to say, feel like she could have done A lot more here. It's kind of like her mom attacking her with you're so beautiful and that's all you are. But I think that from her mom's perspective, she views this as I've raised the most successful daughter. I think that there's almost no reflection on how her mom wasn't afforded the opportunity to like see beyond that.
1: I agree with you. I actually think one of the things I took away from this book as a whole is down the line, I find her relationship with her mother very interesting. And I think she's pretty honest and brutal in parts of it. We're going to skip the chapter where her mother gets sick. But I do think ultimately her writing will go in the direction of female relationships and her willingness to put her mom in a not pleasant light. Because I agree with you. I gave her mom credit, understanding her mom's generation and knowing that she was ever calling her daughter beautiful maliciously. She did not mean that with evil in her heart. Of course I also do understand the weight of all of the implications, like your value is your beauty. And specifically, the part that I was about to get to, the way that her mom tells this story about when Emily was three years old, before she could even read, her mom was talking about problems she was having with other women. And Emily goes to her mother, oh, they're just jealous of you, mama. And her mother tells that story to this day about how incredible it was that Emily's always been so empathetic. And Emily goes, how had I been taught that women are competitors and that all we care about in each other is who's the most beautiful? And I think a problem you had with it later on is at the end of the chapter, it sort of switches to these experiences she has where with a boyfriend or even her husband says, oh, there's another beautiful woman brings her physical pain. Mm -hmm. And so I think this chapter set up not only the value system that she was raised in, and it's very like the call is coming from inside the house that beauty is the most important. A. B, it's your weapon on this earth is how beautiful you are. You're to use it to compete with other women. And any woman that's also beautiful is a direct attack on you. And then C, where has that left her with every other relationship on earth? She can't even have a relationship with a man without being in constant fear of the attack of another woman's beauty. I didn't mind the listicle. I mean, I wouldn't call it a listicle, but I didn't mind the memory blurting, but I do think it's an interesting setup. Yeah.
0: And I do view it as more of a setup than anything else. Like she says in the intro that this is just like a place for her to get her thoughts out on the page. Things she returns to often. I still think that there's more room for reflection in it because I think that the way that it's framed is very much like my mom did this to me. Mm -hmm. And it's very sad and Now that I realize it's actually like quite targeted. There's a section that I actually thought was really interesting about her mom deciding to stop dyeing her hair and men ignoring her on the street now. And she says, I guess that's just the way it goes. She shrugged. There was a peacefulness to her. I imagined what it would be like one day to no longer be noticed by men. Perhaps it's somehow freeing, I asked. Maybe, she said, finally. And it is this thing of like her mom isn't happy that men no longer notice her. This is a sad moment where Emily and her mom have a very different reaction to what's happening to her mom. And she is sort of just, oh, if I was in that position, that sounds good. She's not really being like, oh, my mom was raised to also believe beauty was her only value. And now her beauty is gone. And she's reconciling with that. Obviously, her beauty's not gone. But like, do you know what I mean?
1: I hear you. I definitely think the these things will probably be addressed in subsequent books. And I did see the relationship with her mom that we see throughout the book as points that ultimately she will have other interesting things to say beyond discussing what it's like to be hot.
0: <laughs> and then also just in general, this is something that I keep coming back to throughout this book, is that one of the main points she's trying to make is that it's hard to be hot <laughs> and that it's not all it's cracked up to be. And I just... I think that it must be really difficult if your only perceived value to be your beauty... But I also think we like fundamentally live in a society that values attractiveness enormously. It's like when people are like, listen, you don't understand the opportunities that I lost out on because people thought my dad was too successful and I was just getting it because of who my dad is. And it's just like, all right, but you had the interview. So yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I totally hear what you're saying. And I think that that's what this book kind of reconciles. And she addresses it head on in some chapters, this idea of, yes, it sucks that people don't take me seriously because of my body, but because of my body is the only reason I even have a platform at all to not be taken seriously. So Mm -hmm. where does that rank in the grievances spectrum? Yeah. But just to wrap this guy up before we go into the next one... She's in therapy because her husband has said there's so many beautiful women in the world and it renders her physically upset. So she goes to therapy and her therapist's response is, apples and oranges. What if you're not the same as other women? What if you're an entirely different fruit? And she says, everyone has a favorite fruit. I tell her, I feel a tear run down my cheek. Everyone prefers one over the other. That is how the world works. Everything is ranked. One is always better than the other. I do see, full disclosure, me and Ashley have had many conversations about this book. And I know where Ashley stands at this point. I see where you're coming from. The idea that she's crying over. What if there's somebody else in the world more beautiful is one of the most pathetic, unimportant tears (laughs) ever shed, maybe? What if I'm not the most beautiful? What if I'm the third most beautiful? Or what if somebody prefers a big butt over big boobs? Then what? She also, like, has a good butt. (laughs) I tried to think of a feature that someone might beat her at, but... I can't think of anything.
0: I guess people, like, love blue eyes.
1: In terms of white girls, she is about as good as it gets. I guess you could want someone tall. Anyway, (laughs) I do see in her the problems that like a John McEnroe has, uh, the problems that a Will Smith has. When you have one goal on earth, your life does become very small and pathetic and sad. And it does suck to inhabit that. And I think more so than those two men, the thing about being beautiful as a woman is it's something that has to be decided by others. And there's a real helplessness that comes from feeling like, All I can do is hope people continue to find me beautiful. I
0: just think that there are values instilled to you by your parents. And some people break free of them at 12. Some people break free of them at 18. For me, there's a very specific way of life that my parents wanted me to live. And they really hammered those values in. And I, at 18 years old, went to film school instead of business school.
1: I hear you, but I do think it's dishonest for you to say that what they want for you is not.
0: And it still affects me enormously, but it kind of feels like she is at the very first step of breaking free of it and not at the, all right, it like still affects me, but I've spent like 10 years sorting it out.
1: I would say the her thing is so determined by society as well. Like everything her parents said has been backed up by society and her personal success. The more beautiful you are, the more successful you are, the more loved you are, the more better you are. And I would almost say It's more like marriage for you in the sense that you obviously do one day want to get married. But when your parents are like, are you dating? It's like, shut the fuck
0: up. (laughs) Oh, my God. Can I tell you what happened last night? My dad's going to kill me if I say this on the podcast. He was trying to be funny, but it was like fucked. (laughs) We were doing a puzzle and I hate puzzles and I really lean into it. So I was like doing the puzzle and I was finding these pieces. And I was like, I've literally never been more miserable in my life. I hate this puzzle. And my dad said, that cannot be true. You are 30 and a half and single
1: that's tough <laughs> but I will say to bring it back to Emirata in that same sense where it's like that is a painful thing to hear but you still do but it want... was
0: this thing where I was like yeah I do want a relationship but I'm like I'm not miserable because I'm single don't like, tell me <laughs> but
1: that my value is because of a man and I yeah. think something else we talked about off pod if this seems disjointed is the way that she has a visceral reaction in this chapter to when people call her beautiful. She doesn't want to hear it from a boyfriend, but she does want to be beautiful. Yeah. And so I think it does set up, also for the rest of the book, this conflict of she does want to be the thing she was told she's good at, but also she wants to be a full human. And with that set up, I think we should take it into the next chapter. Perfect. To, I think one of the more salacious headline-catching essays... This chapter is called Blurred Lines and it essentially follows the beginning of her time modeling from dropping out of college to model full time to getting the blurred line videos and the exact consequences of that experience. Yes. And to sum it up, it kind of starts with, so she drops out of UCLA as a sophomore to model full time.
0: I think this is really interesting talking about how she dropped out to model full time. She gets the flu, loses 10 pounds and all of a sudden modeling is like a viable career option.
1: she starts making more money and the more money she makes, the more her agency cares about her. So she stays thin. She learns how to be the best model she can be because I had one objective in mind, money. Money meant freedom and control all I had to do to fund my independence was learn to become someone else a few times a week, strip down and get greased up in body oil to post suggestively in red lace lingerie.
0: I wasn't interested in fame or notoriety, just the cash, or at least that's what I told myself.
1: Within a year after becoming a full-time model, her agency sends her out to New York to audition for Sports Illustrated. And Victoria's Secret. And a couple other modeling agencies in New York City. They all turn her down. But when she's in the New York City Victoria's Secret office, she says, looking at the big photos of all the angels, they were goddesses of this large modern office building and these screens were their shrines. They were mannequins too, I knew, but they seemed to feel powerful in a way I never did. I wanted to be one of them. She gets rejected by Victoria's Secret and everybody, honestly. In New York, I broke my own rules. I let myself imagine the power beyond the money that other women seem to have gained by becoming successful. When she got back to Los Angeles, she determined she wasn't going to be a supermodel, but I was going to make as much money as I possibly could with the options I had. This is when she gets the email to come beyond the Robin Thicke video. She initially says no, because the money is really bad. But the woman who directed it is like, let's just meet up and talk. And she's like, listen, it's gonna be this fun, sexy, empowering video. All women on set. Everybody involved is a woman, except for, of course, the rappers and the singers. And she's like, it's gonna be really great and we can up the money. Emily is like, all right, for you, I'll do it. And when she gets there, she says, it is a really fun, cool, empowering experience. She's dancing around. She's having a good time. Everybody keeps asking if she's comfortable. It's all women working there. And then when the men come on set, it's Pharrell, T.I. and Robin Thicke. The vibe changes. This is what
0: I wanted to say earlier. I feel like the first chapter is deeply melancholy. And then coming into this chapter, it also felt very like... I didn't really care about any of this. Very blasé, very kind of negative about everything. And when she talks about having fun on set, how it actually wasn't that bad when she gets there, she says, my mood shifted. Maybe this day would be fun. She goes there thinking it's going to be a terrible day. She does all of this stuff, only really expecting negativity and the worst. And I do think that that's fair to Evergard up, especially with the way this chapter ends. But I feel like at this point, we're on page 39 of this book and it's all really only been very sad.
1: I disagree. She talks about those early days modeling when she was making enough money to live on her own in the arts district downtown in Los Angeles. And she talks about how she decorated with Christmas lights. And one of my favorite things to do after a day of work was pick up some Thai food, sit on my bed, complete with the quilt I'd bought from Urban Outfitters. Nights like these were what I lived for. I couldn't imagine anything more luxurious or enjoyable. It is a day of work. When was the last time you went into an office job excited?
0: I don't expect her to love work. I just feel like the majority of this book had felt very like negative. It is fun to like order Thai food and sit back at your house and eat in a place that you decorated yourself. But the fact that that was the only positive chunk in this book so far bummed me out. I just feel like why do it then? I know that the point of this book is that like being the most beautiful girl in the world is not always fun, but it's hard to sympathize because it is still an enormous privilege. We still live in a society that values money and then beauty.
1: And I would say that her argument is this idea that beauty is valued under money is a false narrative because she's like, I had that beauty and this is how people treated me. I felt like shit. I was taken advantage of constantly and I was made to be an object. And I think you can say that's still better than being invisible. And I think that that's your argument. It's better to be objectified than ignored.
0: Yeah. And I do honestly feel that way. And I think that that's fair. Because it gave her the opportunity to explain herself. And so I do think in the short term, being just beautiful didn't offer her the fulfillment that she wanted. But she's now been able to use that beauty to parlay it into getting her story out there, which most people cannot do at any point.
1: No, and I agree with you. She's like, I just want to make enough money so I could pay off all my student debt when I went back to school. And most people don't have the option to go make thousands of dollars
0: a day. I mean, we'll get to it in another essay where she talks about not being able to afford an $80,000 painting yet. And I'm just like, okay, I do think that the majority of society, myself included, the idea of an $80,000 painting as something that you can't quite yet afford is absolutely absurd.
1: <laughs> yeah, I hear you. And I think that that's fair. I think you read this as her looking for pity. Yeah. And I read this feeling not sad for her but validated in my personal beliefs the way I read
0: it I felt like she wanted us to pity her for being so beautiful and being like unfulfilled by that beauty isn't everything it's cracked up to be and I just still kind of think it might be
1: (laughs) see and I felt the other way I saw it as her being like if we were on a hike and she got to the top of the mountain and she's coming back down and being like don't go up there it's not worth it and I'm like thanks and I don't
0: Ever want to go up there. Like I don't have any desire to be the most beautiful person in the world, but I do think as someone who I feel I feel like I've been on both sides of a spectrum of like attractiveness and I don't think I'm the most beautiful person by any means, but I used to be like not attractive at all and I think now I'm like fairly conventionally attractive. I felt so 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 ignored and invisible when I wasn't pretty because she's beautiful, this book exists, because she's yes. so beautiful, we listen to what she has to say. I have a lot of personality traits that I've re-met people since sort of growing into myself that they've been like, oh my God, I never knew you like this. I never knew you like that. And it's like, yeah, I've known you for 20 years and you never
1: asked. And I think that that's like a very valid perspective to come at it from of being like, there's this entire experience that she doesn't know if it's worse or better than because that's never been her experience. Yeah. I feel like I read it from the perspective of, obviously I am not close to being the most beautiful person in the world by a long shot, but I definitely was like hot in high school. And there was a point in my life where I felt like I could double down and wake up every morning and try every day to go out and look my most beautiful and see how much attention I could get for that. And I specifically have like really tried to go the other way. And I think for me, reading this book made me feel very vindicated in that choice to be like, no, I'm going to try as hard as I can to like remove myself from that game and be like, okay, I was right. That would not have made me happy.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think for me, the most glaring one is that people I knew in high school, now that I do comedy have been like, oh my God, I never knew you were funny. And it's just like... I know, you never listened.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, when I would tell people I do comedy, they'd be like, oh, you're so pretty, you'll make it in a minute. And I was like, that's not the point of this. Yeah, from both ends of the spectrum, it sucks. And I do
0: think it's admirable that she is not content in just being the most beautiful
1: girl. And she wants to prove that she has something to say. But also, I think what this point is, is it's more than that. The value of beauty is objectification. It feels awful to be an object. It feels awful to not be seen as a human being. And I think that that, to get it back to the initial question that started this rant, is when she's sitting there going, why does she want to be so beautiful and then also to hurt so much to be called beautiful? Because I do think you want to win, but you also want somebody to see you as a human being. Like, you want to believe that you're more valuable than just that. Okay, here's something important
0: to me. Back to Blurred Lines. Back to Blurred Lines. So she does Blurred Lines, which on set, once the men showed up, things got uncomfortable. It just made the women feel like props again. They went from being empowered and like, this is a girl set for girls to have fun to being like, oh, the men are the stars and we are essentially the lamb in the video. I think that that's really important, the way that she talks about being made to feel like an object again, just mm-hmm. by the sake of the fact that the men showed up and they truly did have the power. It was their music video. Then she talks about how When she became famous overnight, she was able to go on all these auditions and suddenly she like had this name and all these career opportunities. One of the agencies in New York that had rejected her very recently turned on a dime and suddenly she was desirable. She's going on auditions for movies and things like that. And she writes... Continuing to relate to my work passively, I signed up to be in movies that I didn't have any interest in, and modeled for brands that I thought were lame. I'd get in my car after one of these readings, feeling worthless, and think about how I'd rather be in the position of the men in these rooms choosing whom to hire for my projects. At this point, it feels so melancholy. She's being opened up this world of opportunities, and all she is is sad. But it's like you at this point. She's about like twenty years old. Why would she get to be the hiring person, making her own projects? What has she? done to deserve that at all and that's one of the things that I also had a hard time being like oh I'm so sorry that being hot has simply gotten you into the rooms and you're not yet in charge of the rooms it is one of those things where I'm like okay you want to write your own projects have you written one
1: no I hear what you're saying I think that's a valid criticism I do wonder if she would agree with you or not because I do feel like a lot of this book is reflecting on how dumb 21 year olds are and that's just the truth of the matter I was an idiot at 21. Were you smart at 21? No, I'm still not smart now. To the 21-year-olds, I'm sorry, but take comfort in the fact that you're pretty dumb right now. (laughs) So if you think that it's never going to get better, it literally can only get better. (laughs) I want to continue because I do think that that's part of this is... I think part of the mistake that she learns... She mistakes desire for control. And I do think that that is like a through line in this book Mm -hmm. is the mistake she made at 21 was thinking because men wanted her, she had any power and the pain of constantly having to learn that that was not true. And I do think if you don't think you have power, at least you know where you stand. The crux of this chapter is years later, she goes to look at Robin Thicke on Instagram and notices he has her blocked. And she recalls that on the day of the set, he was very mad that the models weren't really giving him any attention. He didn't like the lack of attention he was getting from the people he hired to make his music video. So they're on set together and he cups her breasts, her naked breasts. And she says immediately everything kind of comes to a halt and everybody is aware that he's crossed a line. And Diane, the director, goes, are you okay?" I nodded. I may have even smiled, embarrassed and desperate to minimize the situation. I tried to shake off the shock. I felt naked for the first time that day. Diane finally spoke. Okay, well, no touching. She addressed no one in particular, her megaphone hanging loosely at her hip. I didn't react. Not really. Not like I should have. Neither did any of the other women. Despite how many of us there were and how safe I'd felt in their presence, we were in no position to hold Robin Thicke accountable on the set of his music video. We were working for him after all. We paused awkwardly and then we continued shooting.
0: And I really liked the way this chapter wraps up. What if I had yelled in Robin Thicke's face and made a scene, stopped the shoot? Maybe my big break never would have happened. Women who gained their power from beauty were indebted to the men whose
1: desire granted them that power in the first place. Those men were the ones in control, not the women in the world fawned over. Facing the reality of the dynamics at play would have meant admitting how limited my power really was, how limited any woman's power really is when she survives and even succeeds in the world as a thing to be looked at. I read this book as a cautionary tale for other young women. I am almost 30. I'm beyond the age of being some hot young thing that gets taken advantage of. I am an old ugly hag at this point. But reading it, I felt happy I hadn't accidentally pursued paths that landed me in those vulnerable situations. Because the thing is, when you pursue being hot, you are pursuing being desired. And so you are like pursuing putting yourself in a sketchy spot. There is this idea where it's like, well, if you didn't succeed or if you got fucked over, you just weren't hot enough. And she is saying, I was the hottest. I didn't have power. So don't fool yourself into thinking you have power. Save yourself now. And that's why I liked this book. I like 100% see where you're coming from of being like, but you had more power than the girl who wasn't making $25,000 that day. You had more power than the girl who didn't get catapulted into enough fame to support the rest of your life and publish a book. I didn't feel it as as much of
0: like a stay away warning as... It was uh, things aren't always as they appear. So just so
1: you know, being hot and powerful isn't always good. So the next chapter is called My Son's Son. And it's about a horrible relationship she was in when she was 14 with a guy who eventually OD'd on heroin. With a lot of sexual assault. So we will be talking about it on the Patreon. The next chapter as
0: well, Toxic, is about... Being a high schooler and her friendships and wanting to be desired and not knowing her place in the world. So we will be talking about that too. Also heavy female friendship undertones in that one, which you know. And heavy Britney Spears undertones in that one. So really a Claire and
1: Ashley special. Double whammy.
0: The next chapter is called Because Hello Halle Berry. And this is a chapter about a vacation she took with her husband for free in the Maldives. So basically what happens in this chapter, she talks about waking up and snapping an Instagram, posting it and spending kind of the rest of the trip in this weird space where they were both disconnected from society on this romantic dream vacation that they were being
1: literally paid to take. She says they could have never afforded to take if they hadn't been paid to do it. That this is such an exclusive for billionaires by billionaires (laughs) starring billionaires type of vacation. That it's like, who won this situation? And she's like, all I had to do was look sexy in a bikini on Instagram to be paid to do this thing that other people pay to experience. Am I winning the system? But then that kind of opens up a larger question about what is the real cost of looking sexy on Instagram?
0: Who's being used? Is it the guy paying for the vacation? Did she beat them because now she has this free vacation? Or are they using her and her body?
1: But also, what is the actual cost? One may say, oh, they paid you X amount of dollars to go on vacation. You walked away with X amount of dollars. But she talks about Kim Kardashian in the White House and an actress she had met who, in an attempt to be taken more seriously, had kind of dyed her hair brown and adopted this old school conservative look so she would be cast more often. And she was like, am I giving up my right to being a thoughtful person by looking sexy and taking this vacation?
0: She talks also about Halle Berry and how... She's known for being sexy in a bikini in a James Bond movie, but she won an Oscar for getting ugly. So does she need to be less hot to be Oscar worthy?
1: Do you want to talk about how you felt like those early chapters were her getting ugly? Yeah. Because I feel like we took two different parts of this chapter away with us.
0: Like I said, I found the first half of this book deeply melancholy. This is the first chapter where I think she kind of admits to having any fun with her fame and success. She talks about how exhilarating it is to snap a quick photo and upload it and just get a million likes within a day. And I agree with that. Social media is fucking intoxicating. And she talks about using it to create her business and these things and how she's been able to sort of parlay it into something sort of and that she gets enjoyment out of it and that her life isn't miserable. Because I did feel like the first couple sections were sad and I think that the vulnerability she showed there the fact that she had to like showcase the ugly sides of the business and the ugly sides of her life were her showing that it's not all sunshine and rainbows and hotness and she had be kind of her ugliest self in order to gain our respect through the rest of this book.
1: I guess I thought that those earlier chapters weren't anything particularly tragic.
0: I think that they were pretty relatable, but I think she wrote
1: them deeply tragic. Stephanie, the tone of this is melancholy, and I do think it's an accurate account of what happens when your body is an object. Her job was to be sexy, and what it means when you're constantly being sexy is you're going to be taken advantage of a lot physically and because she does talk about how fun it is to have money in those early chapters she's like I loved being richer than all my friends because I could just go into stores that they couldn't go into and buy whatever I wanted whenever I wanted and it was fun and it was nice and she right but she
0: bookends it with talking about how she had just tiptoe around the topic with her friends because she didn't want to make them jealous and not like her there is still a negative side to being able to buy whatever you want and I'm not saying that that's not true I think it was an honest representation of how she felt at the time which she talks later about dealing with depression and I think it was pretty depressed but I'm just saying I think that part of it was if you're serious, it's sad. And so I think that because she's so beautiful to be
1: fun and happy, people would have been like, all right, this is just frivolous bullshit. I guess I wonder if she is a fun person. I do think she might just be a depressed person. I don't think they were like, take out the fart jokes, up the rate. (laughs) Do you want to say your interpretation of it? So she talks about how on this vacation, she actually read Demi Moore's Inside Out. She should have just listened to the pod. And she caught herself being like, what does she have to say? She's just a hot girl. And she goes, you of all people, you who just posted your ass on Instagram, have the audacity to bitch about the world not taking you seriously. What a fucking hypocrite. So she texts her friend and is like, I can't believe even I have this much internalized misogyny. And her friend texts back, it reminds me of Halle Berry because Halle Berry had posted some Instagram where she goes, my looks haven't spared me one hardship. And her friend says, the funny thing about this is at first, it really pissed me off because hello, Halle Berry But then I started thinking about your life and how I assumed you had everything I could ever want because of the way you looked. But obviously, I now know that's not true. It's not true for any woman, even if you're Hallie fucking Barry. As a woman, I'm always thinking if only my ass was a little tighter or my nose was a little smaller, my whole life would be different if I only made myself more appealing to men. I guess that's why I take this book as a warning. She's not stupid. She knows to come out and say, I'm so beautiful and my life has been hard is not likable. But I almost feel like she's doing it in the sacrificial way you say yourself like, you're like, I'm not convinced that that's true. And I think that you have a valid point. But I do think for the same reason you felt like when you were less attractive, you were ignored. Those same people ignoring you are not letting Emily Ratajkowski be president now. The spectrum of that type of attention doesn't get women anywhere. And she's like, I'm here to tell you from the other side of it, the person who's supposed to have won the game, that there is no winning the game. And I feel like that that is helpful If you can internalize that message, it could be freeing.
0: And I agree with that. And I think it's really interesting. And then the rest of this chapter, she and her husband are talking about their role within the system. They're kind of figuring out, like, in what way they're paying for the vacation as
1: well. Did Kim have more power going to the White House in her suit or when she capitalized on the release of her infamous sex tape, the one that made her the most Googled woman on earth? Would anyone have cared about Kim's fight for justice reform if she hadn't had the sex tape? And why did everything these women did... What they wore and what they posted all seemed so reactive, as if they were adapting to and playing in someone else's game with someone else's rules. The whole ocean stretched out before me and yet I felt trapped my body. I do think something interesting about this book, at the beginning of this chapter, she talks about asking her husband to take an Instagram photo of her to promote her bathing suit line and how at the beginning of the relationship, she felt ashamed of how much she needed to take photos of herself. And now she's just like, Why should I feel ashamed this is how I make money? I don't need to feel ashamed that I'm posting this for my business. And I think an interesting subtext of this whole book is the way that men get to pursue money and women have to pursue beauty. And women who are smart can turn their beauty into money. But for some reason, it's okay to say you want to be rich, but it's not okay to say you want to be hot. I think a lot of what you were saying... Yeah. That frustrated you the way that she was like, I was just in it for the money. I was just in it for the money. I think that is society saying that for some reason, it's really okay and admirable and fine to want to be rich but a woman can't want to be hot. So she's allowed to want to be hot if she says this in pursuit of money because that's an acceptable capitalist goal. And I do think that that's like mental gymnastics that she could explore in a second book.
0: That's how I feel about it is because I do think that she's on to something, but I still feel like there are parts of it that feel unfulfilled to me. And what I feel is probably unfair, but she's showing us everyone wants to be the hottest person in the world and she's showing you from the other side. It's actually not that great. I just want her to explore other women.
1: Like when Kylie and Kendall on Keeping Up with the Kardashians went to a soup kitchen so that they would appreciate Christmas more. <laughs>
0: exactly. I think that like yes. when extremely rich people say money doesn't buy happiness and then you have poor people who are just trying to put a roof over their family's heads be like, I don't know. I think that it would make me a little bit happier. <laughs>
1: there is a limit that you need to be comfortable.
0: I think that this book as like an honest reflection from her side of the mountain is really interesting. I think if it's a warning to be
1: like, beauty actually isn't all that, it fails. I do think there's something very like trapped at age 14. If the point of this book was to say, if you thought being the most beautiful woman in the world would make you happy, I'm here to say, it turns out it doesn't. And a lot of people would have gone, yeah, obviously. But I do think 13-year-old me would have been like, what do you mean? <laughs> then why are we right. waking up at four to straighten and then curl our hair? Right. Even from the perspective of being like, oh, because I'm a bikini model, nobody takes me seriously. And it's like, okay, well, when I was a receptionist, nobody took that seriously. Either. Like, there's a lot of jobs that people dismiss as unserious. When I was a receptionist, there was no chance that my book was getting read. So th-
0: there's the difference. Like people don't take women seriously. And I feel like she's very inside of her
1: own experience. That being said, I think it's a good book. <laughs> yeah, I still like it. But I totally hear your perspective. The next chapter is called K-Spa. We're not going to get into it. I do think this chapter could have been a paragraph in a different part of the book. It's basically about how when she goes to Korean spas, it's the only time in her life she's not being sexually viewed through a man's perspective. Because I do think even women have like the male gaze. Yeah. We were all born into it. The chapter didn't do a lot for me specifically. The next chapter that we will be discussing on the Patreon is called The Woozies. It's about her relationship to her mother when her mother got sick and the way she almost didn't step up the plate. The way she had a hard time being there for her mom because she felt so afraid of losing herself.
0: So that leads us into our next chapter transactions where it is literally about the transactional nature of being hot in the entertainment industry.
1: In 2014, my manager at the time, Evan, informed me that the billionaire financier behind Wolf of Wall Street was offering to pay me $25,000 to go to the Super Bowl with him. Everybody who is anybody is doing these kinds of deals with him, he assured me. He's just one of those insanely rich guys from Asia. His name is Joe Lowe. J-H-O-L-O-W. Not to be confused with j Lo.
0: She... Obviously, is going to agree to this situation. It's completely above board. Her agent is going to be there as well, so she's going to this. I mean, to go to the Super Bowl for twenty five thousand dollars. A lot of people pay a lot of money to go to the Super Bowl, and so it's just a no brainer. It's just a no brainer. Of course, we're going to go. We're all going. Who are you explaining this to? I'm trying to paint the picture for how yachting happens. Okay, now I see where you're going with this. I was like, why is Ashley acting like this? And she also draws it back to a time when she was a younger model in Los Angeles, getting invited to a big fancy dinner that was completely paid for before they went out to a club. And she finds out that this club promoter will take hot girls out to a nice dinner to get them to come to the club too, because they're probably making no money at modeling yet. So he's like, I can lure people who can't afford to buy groceries out with dinners at Nobu. And then have hot girls at the club with me. She, after this one experience, never wanted to go with him again until one time he offered her Coachella. Her and her two friends, they were going to go and have an all expenses paid bus house. VIP tickets. To Coachella, which is from LA, like a pretty exciting prospect. And so she's like, well, I couldn't say no to that. So she goes to Coachella and realizes when she's in this house full of random guys and this club promoter and all these girls who are kind of expected to walk around in their bikinis, that it was not a free ride, that she was being asked to be there like as
1: a commodity. And basically on the clock, we're not paying you, but we're bartering you. And it really comes to a head when the first time they get there, it took them six hours to arrive on a bus because of all the traffic. Her and her two friends that they went with thinking there'd be safety in numbers find a bedroom. They close the door. They get into bed. And the guy comes in and goes, what do you mean? Like you have to get out there and go jacuzzi time. And when they say no, we're too tired. He calls in this girl, Kim, who even though she was their age, felt like a veteran and really knew her way around these people to Kim. All right. He said, seriously, remember what we talked about? I need you to go and do your thing out there. She nodded twice quickly and without speaking a word, swiveled around and skipped out of sight. Jacuzzi time. I heard her sing out. And she talks about how the year before... She had gone with her friend and they were dead broke and barely could afford to get in and slept in her Nissan. And she goes, I realized I felt safer last year sleeping in my car in a crummy hotel parking lot. Isabella and I had been wrong. This was no free ride.
0: So then we're back at the Super Bowl and she's talking about this situation that felt very different from that Coachella situation. It's completely above board. It's through her agent. Her agent is literally there with her and there are other very successful people there too. At this point in her career, she's being paid for appearances. So it feels like that again but it's a much more intimate gathering
1: but she goes there and she's like it does kind of suck like we're all just sitting here looking at our phones nobody knows each other we're just waiting for the game to be over and she goes towards the end of the game the men at the back stood up and evan reported that we were headed to an after party i was surprised and disappointed i'd been looking forward to the end of this uncomfortable day i asked evan when he thought it would be okay for me to leave he checked the time probably a few more hours let's feel it out i'd been reminded i was not free to come and go as i like i was on the clock
0: so the other successful people there. There were other actors. There was a Victoria's Secret model who is
1: definitely Miranda Kerr. They go to this after party. It sucks. After a few hours, Evan, her manager, is finally like, "All right, you're allowed to go." So as she walks out, she sees this guy, Joe Lo, Jow Lo. I don't know how to pronounce it. With the Victoria's Secret model, she had ignored me and the other guests. Her attention focused on Joe Lo. Now she kept her eyes locked on him as he took his shot, throwing her head back dramatically as he did, only to quickly toss the alcohol over her shoulder. When he faced her again, her eyes sparkled and the famous dimples appeared on her cheeks. Damn, I thought, what a maneuver. Laughing, she turned her back to him and bent on her knees to grind her ass against his crotch. Lo's face lit up in delight. When I left, I realized, to her it was an opportunity and for me I'd completely ignored the unspoken task I'd been hired to perform to entertain the men who paid me to be there but then here's where I find her very likable. she goes I like to think that I was different from women like her and Kim Kim being the woman who kind of wrangled the other girls to get in the jacuzzi at Coachella but over time it became harder to hold that distinction or even believe in its virtue she talks about watching women succeed through their association with powerful men the world celebrates and rewards women who are chosen by powerful men she
0: says I watched models and actresses guarantee themselves financial success and careers by dating." or marrying rich and famous men. The Victoria's Secret model eventually married a billionaire tech giant. I mean, we talk all the time about yachting, becoming a yacht girl, and this is very much the first step to it. If she had performed at this event, she would have been invited to
1: vacation with people. She would have been invited on a yacht. (laughs) Miranda Kerr, she says, the next week it was her birthday and that billionaire gave her a $1.3 million necklace as a birthday gift.
0: So she talks about how... There is this low build to it where at first, I think it feels very above board before you're just kind of living in this place where you're being purchased by these men, essentially. And there is this,
1: is it worth it? I also do wonder, like, what do you feel you owe? I do think that there's the situation you get into something being like, oh, this is a favor. But then the question comes up, well, what are you going to say no to someone who just did you a favor? And she writes this that I
0: think is really interesting. We all had to make money one way or another. So they were the hustlers and I was what exactly? I posted paid Instagram ads for skincare and clothing brands owned by rich men. And I was no stranger to commodifying my physical presence, posing next to CEOs in their suits at their store openings and parties. Wasn't I hustling just like they were? Wasn't I on the same spectrum of compromise? I think that that is
1: really interesting when you're already doing these things. It feels like what's a little more? I like loved this chapter just in comparison with the Holly Madison books. But I do think to see Amrata be able to take an honest look at herself, how complicit are any of us?
0: Especially in the middle of this luxurious situation. So they were shuttled to the Super Bowl in a party bus that was taken down a special blocked off road with no traffic.
1: And I also think it's interesting the way that these mirror each other in that men are being paid. This isn't only fans, where it's like, I like this girl, I'll pay you to show me your wares like there's this weird thing where all transactions are happening in a boardroom between men
0: yeah it reminded
1: me of like a dowry of like buying somebody's daughter
0: it all felt very calculated and specific it was hard to figure out when it was crossing a line like when you should opt in and opt out but I can really see how it escalates and then you get to a point where you're like well I've already said yes to x y and z so now I might as well just go on this vacation.
1: I think you can either just like stop showing up or submit to it. I don't even want to say stop showing up or submit. I feel like Miranda Kerr embraced with two arms. That woman had an agenda and she got herself a billionaire. Yeah. And she did it. (laughs) She did it. And I want to say that guy Lao is now, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but he is now an international fugitive because it turns out he was fully stealing billions of dollars with the help of the Malaysian royal family from like Malaysian farmers, I think, is the deal. He is like an evil person who laundered all of their pensions. The punchline of that story is that she had to return the diamonds,
0: but still married a billionaire.
1: Yeah, he'll buy her new diamonds.
0: I mean, I do think it's just a really interesting look at the transactional, easy route that she didn't take.
1: Yeah, and I also do think in the larger idea of who has the power in any situation, at the end of the day, Miranda had to return all of those diamonds. Right. Right. Nothing's truly a gift. You always owe something. And how are you going to pay up? And when you're indebted to somebody, you're not in power. So next
0: up is the chapter, Buying Myself Back, originally published in The Cut. And it sparked some pretty heavy conversation. There's a lot going on in this chapter, but it's all around the concept of who owns an image of yourself. So she talks about being sued by a paparazzi for posting a photo that they took of her on Instagram. She talks about Prince the artist. Using Instagram photos of her for an exhibition where he just like printed out Instagrams and sold them for $80,000. And then finally, there's a section about a photographer that she worked with very early in her career who took dozens and dozens of Polaroids of her, some nude, where after she became famous, he sold as books that she had no right to a piece of. She couldn't stop him. She had no control over the images of herself. And when she did try to look into it with lawyers. They were basically like, he has a contract that she's like 99% sure is forged, but he does have a contract and fighting it would have just cost her money and she would get almost nothing out of it.
1: Well, really what they said too is, if he won this and he had to hand over the rights to everything, the books are out there and the internet is the internet. These photos exist. You can't take them back. If anything, you could own a piece of the books that you
0: wish didn't exist, but do. I didn't like this chapter when I read it in the cut. Mm -hmm. And I liked it a lot more in the context of the book, especially with the chapter we're going to talk about next. But I feel like it's kind of about having no authority over her own image. But these projects only exist because of the power her name holds.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And so I think it's fucked that they're being made and used without her permission. But this chapter feels like it's a lot about her not having the power at the end of the day, When these projects only exist because of her notoriety, I think that this is happening to a fuck ton of women who have no power, like something similar is happening. Women are being taken advantage of in entertainment, in art, in all these things, and we don't know their names, and we don't know anything about them, and we don't know how they perceive and deal with the way that their image exists in society. It's just there. Mm -hmm. and we don't know anything about them, and they'll never be able to tell us how they feel about it. And I don't think that she
1: offers any perspective about that. Well, I disagree. She explicitly says, I'm speaking for those women who can't. I'm speaking because I'm able to, and they can't, and I'm speaking on behalf of all of us. I also would like to question this thing where it's like, you can only write about your situation if you had the worst one. I hear what you're saying, and I do think... It's valid for a lot of it, but I do feel like this idea of, well, some women have it even worse. I think the most powerful people speaking out trickles down and does, I mean, she says, I want more for myself. I will proclaim all of my mistakes and contradictions for all the women who cannot do so. For all the women we've called muses without learning their names, whose silence we mistook for consent. I stood on their shoulders to get here. She does acknowledge, and she has an entire section in the next chapter about an unknown muse.
0: When I first read it, I felt without that context, I think that it's really a little frustrating to read. Mm
1: -hmm. And I
0: think she does speak up for the muses, but I think at the end of the day, this section, I don't like that it ends quite flippantly, where it's like at the end of the day, he'll run out of Polaroids and I'll still be me
1: or whatever. Jonathan will run out of unseen crusty Polaroids, but I will remain the real Emily, the Emily who owns the high art Emily and the one who wrote this essay too. She will continue to carve out control wherever she can find it.
0: This essay is her carving out that control, which I think is great. But it feels almost submissive to just be like, it is what it is. And I think that that's all she can do. But then two chapters later is a chapter called Men Like You, where the editor of the magazine treats who was one of the first editorial spreads she did. And it was what got her the first little boost of attention that ended up getting her the Blurred Lines music video writes to her basically saying, I helped start your career. So we should make an NFT together because you kind of owe me your career. And she writes a letter back to him in this book. You gave me an opportunity, but I don't owe you shit and you are an asshole and I hate you. I liked the straightforwardness and the men like you that this man isn't the only man who's ever fucked someone over. It's men like him. This man is the guy who published the Polaroid book. This man is Richard Prince. This is about the muses. This is about the women who work hard and then the men get all of the credit or this is about the women who exist and then men get credit for their existence. She says, I'd betrayed myself and fetishized myself to be appealing to you. Even the way you called me smart stung. I hated that I'd use the things I love to win your attention. And she talks about her place in creating the narrative around herself that made her appealing to him. And then for him to kind of throw it back in her face, like I made you, I discovered you. And I think that like the anger in this chapter is really poignant and well written
1: I just think it was worth stopping and just thinking about, even if she didn't have a grand conclusion. We're so saturated with images of people. And what is their right to that image?
0: I also think, though, that it's more than just her. Like, there's a lot of people involved in... I
1: understand that there's more than just her, but I'm saying, how often do you stop and think about those people? Never. But then she wrote an essay and it made you go, well, there's a lot of people like this. So I think in that sense, it was very effective.
0: I actually read an essay about her essay that made me think of that. Again, I question the criticism of, well, it's not just you. I also hate that thing of like, you can't talk about your experience if it's not the worst experience or the most experience. Mm-hmm. But I also feel like in being someone with the platform she has, there is a certain opportunity to speak to a lot of people and for a lot of people. And that's why the buying myself back essay didn't really speak to me. But the men like you essay did. Okay. Okay. I really liked the way that in Men Like You, she kind of took ownership of getting herself to the position where she was exploited and then being like, I was complicit, but like in me being complicit, you also didn't create
1: me. I created me. The thing about men like you is she is speaking from a position of power where she outlasted his little magazine. He does now need her financially. Right. She is financially in the position to allow him to make money or not. He needs her for the NFT. He's hoping to be allowed to capitalize on her story. And so I do think they are two sides of the same coin of in the Richard Prince situation, she lost. And in this situation, she won. Right. And so in one, she's speaking from the person who didn't have the power and in both situations, she's just as sexy as ever. But it really is. And one, she's richer. So she has the power. And I guess I think the point of buying myself back that I thought was important is kind of a discussion that came up during the nudes leak. Having this fight with definitely older generations who are like, well, if you took a naked foot of yourself, then who are you to complain that I got leaked to everybody? I feel like the reason it's tied to that specific story of assault and then also even the story about her own ex-boyfriend who had dated and lived with her for three years. They owned a house together. They bought art together even he eventually reduced her to this commodity, is there is something about like the technology of owning somebody's image and the way that it, we should think about it in terms of an assault. Just like with the Jada situation in last week, we ultimately off camera came to the conclusion that it's a lot like revenge porn. So for people who didn't listen to the Will situation, Jada Pinkett was in a movie where she was naked. Will watched that film on purpose with his grandmother so that when they met for the first time, his grandma would be at that present moment watching the scene where she was naked having sex on screen. And it was done to humiliate her. And I think to be in a relationship, the situation with her boyfriend is she eventually bought the art piece back from her own boyfriend, but he kept the original studio drawing of it that he was selling to her for $10,000. And I think it's like in this own situation, my boyfriend saw me as like a commodity to be bought or sold. He didn't see me as a human being anymore who deserved to own myself. This stranger who took advantage of me sexually at a very vulnerable time in my life, those photos were taken at a vulnerable time in her life. And this idea that that can always be held against you, that no matter who you become, it's always like this reminder that you're still just a pair of drunk young holes to us that can be bought and sold. Like they are all in the same line of thinking of we get to own you. You're not a person.
0: I guess that I feel like that chapter didn't end with anything other than like this just is what
1: it is and it sucks. What is she supposed to solve? Revenge porn in her book? (laughs) Right. And then I feel like the Men Like You chapter does belittle him in a beautiful way. The situation is Richard Prince is still celebrated by society. He has major galleries showing him. It's not that she belittled that guy. She tried to belittle Richard Prince, too. I mean, he didn't do much. She only gets to win when society allows her to win. And she only gets to win when she's richer than other people. That's fair. I don't think it's that she wrote one better than the other. I think it's that one had a better lived situation and outcome than the other. A fun piece of blind item gossip is that the rumor is the art dealer who bought the naked Emily Ratajkowski and put it in his living room was Jayla's husband.
0: I guess it's like most related to when someone screenshot a tweet and share it on an account with hundreds of thousands of followers and not give you any credit for it. And you're just like, those are my words being used
1: One thing against Emily Ratajkowski is she came out in the defense of the fat Jew and said that like, how dare you think you own those words? And I find it deeply ironic that she doesn't think you should own a tweet you wrote under your own name. That is one criticism I have is she did not extend it to any other person. And I will never forgive her for that. She does
0: have this enormous opportunity. I think we
1: forget that getting your side of the story out there is a privilege. I do think at the same token, I don't want to hold women back by being like, and you better be so grateful that you don't complain. But I hear what you're saying. I do think the fat Jew situation is pretty damning that she was not able to then extrapolate to anybody else's right to their own work. One thing that I was reading about
0: in Kayleen Nauman's essay about the Cut article is what about the photographers who took those Instagrams, the hairstylists on set, the designers, the stylists, the whatever, like the people whose names get left off of even the Instagram posts. There are so many people whose art is taken away from them and it sucks that it's like an image of her. But like
1: the way that copyright laws are just like absolute horseshit. I guess I don't think that this was necessarily a conversation about copyright i think it was a conversation about cashing in on taking advantage of people i feel like i could see it both ways on the one hand if i had said something stupid at the age of 21 and somebody happened to have it on their camera roll and they waited till i had all the success and then used it against me i'd be like what the fuck i've been out here working like why don't you just work as so hard but on the same time like look at this podcast we're out here cashing in on the names of other people so totally it's a give and take economy baby <laughs> <laughs>
0: Let's talk about the final chapter we're going to discuss here on the main verge of the
1: pod. So this last one is called Pamela and I'm excited because it kind of gets into the relationship with her and this guy, Sebastian, I think bear cloud is his name. What the fuck? Who, if you're like us, you've been wondering about for years. (laughs) (laughs) So
0: Sebastian cloudy bear,
1: not only does he look like a teddy bear. I honestly think she fucked a teddy bear into real life. (laughs) Does that make sense? It feels like that Lindsay Lohan movie with the Barbie with Tyra Banks. Life-size. It feels like a life-size situation where she like build a beard her own husband. She and Sebastian.
0: Who she calls S. She calls S like they're in fucking Gossip Girl or some shit. She talks about their relationship, how he's a New York City boy. Claire and I have pretty much determined that he's just a New York City rich kid who kind of tricked her into thinking he was a nice normal guy. I don't think he seems bad. But we'll get into it. So this chapter is about them going to an event. She's not super in the mood to go. She's in kind of a weird mood. It's his agent's party for his agency. She gets all dressed up. He's like an hour and a half late. But then they have a nice romantic hang before they leave. They get to the party. And she is like, just don't leave me at this party. I can't be left alone. Of course, he does.
1: She says it's really loud. He's glad handing through the room. And I think it's important to say that she got dressed up and she ended up much sexier than she had intended. And as a last ditch effort, she then throws a coat around her waist and buttons it. And so she shows up with a sexy outfit underneath and she really struggles with whether or not to fulfill the expected role of beautiful girl should show up looking beautiful, right? I thought worse than arm candy being invisible, right? Right? She like goes back and forth on how she should present herself at her husband's event.
0: And she talks a lot about in acting, she realized she did not have a passion for any of the acting work that she had the opportunity to do. She wasn't auditioning for projects she even liked and she hated auditioning in general. So she had kind of taken a step back from acting. So she says at this actory party, it bothered me that the people at this party would look at me as a failure or nothing more than a piece of ass. I desperately wish that S and I could laugh together at all the bullshit this party represented, but I knew we weren't completely aligned. So he is trying to make it as an actor and a producer. He's doing pretty well. He produced Uncut Gems. Like he has some projects that are a pretty big deal. So she talks about how he is like way more in the scene than she has ever wanted to be. And she kind of resents that about the situation that she wants to just laugh at how ridiculous everyone looks. But he is one of those ridiculous people. It's not just how ridiculous everyone looks. How bad of people they are.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, she says, I resented S for coming to this party, a room full of men who only two years before had been kissing Harvey Weinstein's ring and encouraging their young female clients to take meetings with him in his hotel rooms. And she says when she first met S, she felt like they were in on it together. And then as he succeeded, she couldn't tell if he was just being good at business by being part of the boys club or if he liked being part of the boys club that made all these decisions about young women.
0: She asks him to not leave her. He ends up walking across the room, taking a couple steps ahead of her, and then she gets swept into a conversation with some greasy guys who want to take photos with her and really bother her. Then her husband's agent makes a pretty inappropriate comment about how she's just a Pam Anderson who's going to die in obscurity with Hepsi.
1: So this agent, who's often really disrespectful of her and continues to call her Emma throughout the chapter, is talking about how great her husband is. And he says... Everyone knows you're famous, Emily, but I always say S. S is the one who he trailed off. Come on, Berg. I say, you think I don't know how special this guy is? I married him. But Berg begins again. And Emily, I mean, you're really fucking famous, but she is really fucking famous, S said in a soft voice, almost to himself. And then Berg goes, yeah, I mean, listen, I'm not even on social media and I know how fucking famous she is. She's like Pamela Anderson before the Hep C. And that's when she feels a chill down her spine. And even S goes, you need to shut the fuck up now. But she's like, I can't tell him off because my husband needs him. But she also feels this intense amount of guilt. But I'm the one who looks sexy. I'm the one who has been capitalizing off my body. Is it my fault? And I think she has a really interesting balance in this chapter of she's clearly in a situation where everyone's a fucking asshole. But the honesty of being like, but it's still so hard to not internalize the guilt.
0: And it's this really hard thing that I think about Hollywood in general where everyone's an asshole and even if
1: you know it, you can't do anything because you need it. They end in the car on the ride home. S goes, listen, I'm so sorry that he said that to you. That was awful. I'm so sorry I cried. I'm so embarrassed. You shouldn't be sorry. God, no. He said, I just, it all would have been okay if I just wasn't there. It would have all been normal. You could have had a good time. And as they're in the car, she goes, You are the problem. I thought to myself, something is wrong with you. And if you were taken out of the equation, everything would just be fine.
0: I think it really illustrates a lot of the book well for me in figuring out what she even wants. I think she's constantly juggling the situation of I want a career, but like, do I want that career? I want to be sexy, but do I want to be the sexy that other people own or do I want to be sexy to myself? Just all these parts of the industry and her life and her career and her relationships with other people it's this constant back and forth between what she can control and
1: societal norms and pressures and things like that. I mean, I think it's like, she wants what we all want, which is to be successful and loved. And she has been told her whole life, you have the secret power, which is that you're so sexy and Mm -hmm. you need to use that. But then we also live in a society that's like, you should be deeply ashamed of ever exerting sexuality. And so now she's caught in this trap of, never knowing how far she should use it to get ahead and get what she wants. And then every time she does, she just feels so shamed. And she is actively shamed. To be told, you're going to end up like the sex object that was scorned by everyone in the world, Pamela Anderson, and ended up with a deadly disease. That is explicitly shaming somebody.
0: It was so deeply disrespectful of who she is and what she's done. Both of them.
1: And even the way he goes, you're famous, but S is the real. If S was better than her, he'd be better than her. Yeah. The way that nothing is ever good enough. Your success is meaningless and cheap. It doesn't matter how high you get. It's empty. And of course, it's being bestowed by the same man who is the man that she's trying to appeal to. So it's very tricky. Even in that chapter, Men Like You, when she talks about that guy that she tried so hard to seem smart for, she goes, you didn't realize that I had your number. I knew that if you thought I was smarter than the other ones, you would think I was special. And I did that on purpose. Here's this man who runs a magazine called Treats Magazine that he wants to be essentially a new playboy. And he's going, oh, how great. Someone finally has brains. As if... All of these women who are competing to be the hottest woman, which is a competition he literally set up for his own business, is like so disgusted by their pursuit of being hot, which is a value he told them to achieve. At the end of all of it is Emily feels the shame and the guilt. That guy, Steve, didn't feel too guilty to ask her to do an NFT with him. The shamelessness of it all, whereas like she is so wrought with shame.
0: Yeah, I think that this book is a lot about grappling with like society is telling her what she is and so then when she leans into it she's shamed when she leans out of it she's shamed
1: very much the forbidden fruit her whole life people come up to her mom and be like she should be a model you could really capitalize on that like you're told that you have this incredible asset but if you ever use it you're a piece of shit and we hate you yeah (laughs) I don't know I
0: liked it I know I liked it a lot I have criticisms of it and I, I think those are valid and I think I went harder on it because I think I know how much you liked it. And I like definitely wanted
1: to get that stuff out there. One of my other criticisms would have been the division between essays. Like I understand they're all of the same topic, but I felt like the things about her and her mother relationship, I felt like the last chapter is kind of about her releasing her anger and then her giving birth. And it's sort of a quick little wrap up essay that we'll get into on the Patreon And I feel like when she showed how far that she could take this topic, I was disappointed in the essays like the K-Town Spa essay that felt to add almost nothing else. Any final thoughts, Ash?
0: My final thoughts are that, once again, I think that she is a much better writer than I thought to give her credit for, which I'm ashamed of. And I think that she has a lot of really interesting perspectives that I think I would like to see her explore outside of her body. And I know that that was the point of this book to be about her body. But I'm like kind of curious to hear more from her. I would read more shit from her.
1: I think it's worth the read if this interests you at all. This is a book we normally would stay away from on the podcast because I think it's more of a food for thought than a sensationalist name drop. Here's what actually happened book. And if it had been anybody else, I don't think we would have done it. But I was happy to read it. It was nice to read like a book that's good, even if it is harder to talk about. Yeah, it was also nice to read a book that was quick. You guys, on the Patreon this week, as we said, we're going to get into the rest of the chapters. We're going to get more wild with it. We'll do some more celeb name dropping, blind blind items, personal researching. Also, I'm going to get Catherine Parker, art expert on the phone, to discuss how important Richard Price even is. Prince. Whatever. I don't even care. I don't even know what his name
0: is. Who even is he? And okay, so next week... No new episode, but we will have a Patreon this Thursday and next Thursday. And then we'll be back in the new year,
1: fresh as motherfucking daisies. Next week on the Patreon, too, we're going to do the Sex and the City reboot. We're going to be discussing it. I'm so excited. I love you guys so much. Have the best new year. I love you. We'll see you 2022. See you 2022. And a especially happy new year to our five star
0: reviewers. Thank you so much to Megano, more like Mega, yes. Thank you to Espiana, keep being especial. Thank you, Emily Waters, stay hydrated, baby. Thank you, Sid the Sloth, take it as slow as you friggin' need. Thank you to SW and Dancer 22. Keep dancing, baby. Thank you, Jesse Groom's Dogs. Oh my God, those dogs are so lucky to have you. Thank you, Samantha Ville Aqua. I appreciate the hydration. Thank you, Hawa8. You really ate that review. Thank you, Lauren Griffin56 for requesting. Elvis and me, like Elvis would say, thank you very much. Thank you, SMR9987712. I appreciate the password. Thanks to Audrey Bananas. Hell yeah, baby, go bananas. NJ Banana Head. Okay, it's a Bananarama. Lastly, thank you to Meredith20. That's two 10 out of 10s because you are a perfect score twice over. Thank you so much, you guys. I love you. See you next week. Cause mm-hmm.